Welcome back, everyone, to the FISA Fireside Chat. We're super excited to have an amazing guest with us today, Jacques Benchetrit, which is head of M&A and fundraising at a Global Top Round in London, England. So welcome on the podcast, Jacques. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you for taking the time today. And why don't we start with a classic question that we ask all of our guests. Maybe you could start by giving us a little bit of a background, how you started at Concordia, maybe the first internship you landed and a bit on your career path, and then we'll uh, we'll move on from there. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll give you broad strokes and then you could uh, double click into whatever you want. Uh, I did the, I went to JMSB, obviously, uh, in the co-op finance uh, program. So I did three internships during uh, my career. My first internship was at a hedge fund called Pavilion Investment House, where I was doing sort of equity research, investment recommendations, that sort of things. Uh, those sorts of things. After that, I went to Raymond James working in equity research. And after Raymond James, I worked at TC Transcontinental in the M&A team. It was at that point that I realized I wanted to focus on M&A. Uh, I graduated university. I got two offers, one at National Bank in Toronto. It's quite a story, that one. And obviously, uh, HSBC in London. I picked HSBC, rotational program, so M&A, leveraged finance, equity capital markets. Did that for about two years before I jumped ship to Houlihan Loki, a boutique American bank. I was in the special situations team, so complex cross-border M&A and fundraising in difficult regulatory environments. It's basically a fancy way of saying we focused on fintech, uh, some distributed ledger technology, and we touched on aerospace and defense, pharma, fraud, uh, gaming, all interesting industries. Uh, I had a sort of a moment of realization where I was like, I don't know why I'm working in investment banking. I quit, uh, bought a car for a thousand pounds, traveled for a year, fell in love, moved to Sweden. Uh, in Sweden, I took a role as head of mergers and acquisitions for a publicly listed company called Zordix. I led about $100 million worth of deal making in a year and a half. I uh, saw that there was a need for advisory services in the video gaming industry in the sub $100 million check size. So I started GTR Advisory alongside GTR. Uh, Global Top Round is a South Korean company with four divisions. We have an accelerator, a uh, game testing platform. We're currently raising an $80 million VC fund. And then we have GTR Advisory, M&A and fundraising for video gaming companies in the five to $100 million deal size. Great. Well, thank you for that. Maybe we could rewind a little bit to your time uh, at Concordia and what, what it was like breaking in. You, you mentioned you had offers from National Bank in Toronto and finally HS, HSBC out in London. So maybe you can walk us through what that process looked like, sort of getting, getting offers in you know two major cities, one one overseas. And uh, you know what, what, what the decision process uh, looked like? Yeah, Um I think maybe before we get into that, like there's one thing that I really recommend students do. And well, maybe two things. I think I saw you wearing a Kenneth Wood sweater. I think that's a fantastic experience. Uh, the other one I highly recommend is case competitions. And the reason for that is case comps is what helped me break into HSBC. So we'll get into that in a second, but I'll I'll answer your, your question. Um, obviously the informational interviews are very helpful but not for the reason people think. I think informational interviews gets you talking the right way. It gets you asking the right questions and it gets you answering questions the right way. 
because I mean, like, let's be real. All you do is you go to a bunch of bankers, you ask them some questions, and then they give you the answers they want to hear in the interviews. So I recommend doing a lot of informational interviews because you build your lingo. Um, and yeah, you build your network, but really like the recruitment process is pretty standard, especially like out of a school like JMSB or McGill, um, you submit your CV and then you get an interview and then it's about how well you can interview. Uh, so I think that's what happened with National Bank. I interviewed, uh, I think I just applied online, got an interview thanks to my CV. Having had three internships, I was a pretty good candidate. Um, went to their offices, interviewed with the team. It all went well. I think the HSBC process is a lot more interesting for people. Um, Europe is different than North America. In North America, the informational interviews helps you build your network and means you know when to apply and you do get a bit of an advantage over just cold applications. But Europe is a lot more structured. So informational interviews aren't as important. I think coming out of JMSB, at least when I was there, nobody really encouraged us to apply. Uh, and that was a mistake. We we never, I never, and it was never on my radar to apply. Uh, but if you do apply, then it's a very structured process. It goes through HR, you have your first round, then you go to London. Uh, it's a case interview, at least the one that we did. Um, their case comps really helped me stand out versus the other applicants. It wasn't that different from interviewing at Scotiabank or, uh, I don't know, RBC, BMO, National Bank, et cetera. It was all more or less the same. I think the other difference is you're interviewing against people who aren't in finance in Europe because they hire a lot of people who've done arts degrees or history degrees, but they come out of Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, so it's an opportunity for you to really pull away from the off uh, from the competition. Yeah, you brought a lot of good points, Jacques, and I'm a big fanatic of case comp, so I, I totally agree with your point on on that. And maybe I was just curious to touch on your LinkedIn. I see that you have an experience at the, the London School of Economics. Is that a factor that played a, a key role in 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 you landing a job in in London? Did you network or did you go in person to to try to build connections while doing this, or it was more of an online uh, platform? Yeah, I mean, I think, oh, no, it wasn't online. It was in person. I think it was very helpful. Um, I did applied corporate valuations, which was, you know, coming from LSE, it's a pretty advanced class. It definitely set me apart uh, versus other applicants. I mean, we've had pretty good education coming out of uh, JMSB, especially if you did like the advanced Kenneth Woods classes. But this was just far and above, way ahead what we learned at JMSB. Uh, so it was proper investment banking level uh, class. And the other one I did was um, advanced advanced uh, negotiations. And the people in my class, I mean, I was studying with a governor from Mexico. I was studying for, with other investment bankers, people negotiating, you know, very large contracts for their companies. And uh, that was probably one of the, the best classes I've ever done in my life and one of the most useful experiences. I think what it did as well was it put London on the map for me. I mean, obviously, we all know London and New York exists, but it's this like intangible thing. It gave me a reason to go. It gave me like a foundation. Again, like I think a lot of it is like the lingo and, and knowing how people speak and how to present yourself. Um, so it, it definitely set a foundation for my application to HSBC in London. Maybe for a bit of background, I'm curious to hear, do you have UK citizenship? 
or you, you needed a, a visa? I needed a visa. Okay, I guess that's pretty encouraging to hear for uh, for a lot of people at, at the school. Maybe so. Touching on your your time at HSBC, you mentioned it was a rotational program. Can you can you break down a little bit further how how that worked? Was it you know three stints of uh, eight months? I guess during during your time there, or and can you sort of break down the different rotations that you did and left in uh, ECM and M and A? Yeah, I'm trying to to remember exactly how it went down because mine was a bit shambolic. I was like hired before the actual regular intake. So it was what's called okay. a full hire, uh, which meant I went through sort of a different stream. Um, but typically how it works is, yeah, you work either in M&A, in a sector team, in Leffin, ECM. Um, I think those are pretty much your options. I worked in capital goods and automotives. So because it's a sector team, you do M&A and IPO and you try to develop sector expertise. Um, after that, I worked in equity capital markets. So I learned about rights issues, IPOs, but the more of the uh, operational side of it or more process driven side of it. Um, it was during that time where I also started working on, I oh know that was in Leffin. So after that, I went into Leffin. Um, this is where like you raise debt for revolving credit facilities, for um, bonds. What I thought was really interesting was bond ratings uh, because nobody talks about that, but and it's just one guy running the desk. But understanding, if you understand how a system works, you can uh, improve your scores within that system more easily. And so just seeing like the nuts and bolts of the bond rating system, I thought was very interesting. After I finished in leverage finance, I got a pretty attractive offer to return to capital goods and automotives. Uh, it was at that point, I think before I returned, I had started a new division uh, called White Goods, a new coverage sector, which is basically home appliances. So I went back to work in that sector. And it was very interesting because even though I was an analyst, I was working directly with the global head of capital goods and automotives, the global head, head of Nordics, um, managing teams in Hong Kong. It was absolutely wild and a unique opportunity. So I returned to see that through. Yeah, it's, that's an awesome experience. And maybe uh, maybe switching gear, we see a lot of people uh, maybe exiting to the buy side after doing two years of investment banking or growing in the same firm and being promoted to associate. You kind of switch gears and switch firms totally, right? By going to Ulan Loki. I'm curious to hear about uh, th this transition and your task evolved and you were kind of in a new sector or specialization. So how was that uh, that transition? Maybe if you could walk us through your day-to-day -day and how different it was via, uh, comparing with HSBC. Uh, yeah. So um, first of all, why I switched. This is kind of depressing to say. I don't know if I should say it. Maybe you guys can cut it later. Uh, but I sort of looked around the firm at all of the seniors around me. And I was like, I don't want their life. So what's the point of me staying here? And the other thing was I had launched White Goods. I was working like a dog. I burnt out once already, full burnout, like terrible. Um, and then I asked myself like, okay, like where, where am I heading? And I realized I had no idea. Nobody was really giving me actual guidance, which is what I desperately needed. I knew I had 
skills. I knew I had the experience, but I didn't know in which way to point it. And um, the reason why I joined the special sits team at Houlihan was because the MD on the team, he didn't know this at the time, but he was going to be my mentor. And so I wasn't so much looking for my next career step as I was looking for a mentor. And the team I joined was like no other I've seen since. Um, the MD was the ex-head of m at UBS. Uh, he worked at SoftBank. He was basically there for fun. Um, the associate, basically what he said was, we want everybody on our team to be performing at a level far and above what their rank is. So we never had, and our, our signatures never said analyst, associate, whatever. It just said Hulahan Loki, and based on the quality of our work, people would just assume we were VPs, directors, whatever it is. And the other reason why I joined that team was because of the nature of the work we were doing. It was very bespoke. It was very um, interesting. There was not a lot of, there weren't a lot of existing processes and ways of doing things. I could tell that there was a lot of room for me to be creative. Uh, so to give you an idea, the first deal we joined, we were doing an M&A deal where we issued something co uh, called a contingent value right, which is essentially a bond whose face value is determined by the outcome of a piece of regulation. So it was just like a wild deal to be joining. The next deal after that was a cryptocurrency trying to acquire a public firm. And so my job was like, how do you value a currency? And then the deal after that was equally crazy. It was a $500 million raise for crypto exchange. One of the deals we did was I uh, went to the Middle East and uncovered fraud in a billion dollar company. Um, so just like these crazy situations that we would get into because we were the special situations team. And uh, so, you know, you asked about my day to day. Uh, this is the first time I really worked in a team. Uh, when we had deal flow come in, everybody knew what we had to do. Uh, everybody knew what the, the next steps were. We were absolutely in sync. My day-to-day -day could be something as simple as like, hey, we need comps for this and that. Or it could be something as bespoke as, yeah, figure out how to value a cryptocurrency. You know, but, but it was it was wild and a lot of fun. Because it looks like you had yeah, quit the time at, at Houlihan. So you spent three years at Houlihan. I guess uh, the, the pandemic hit right at the, the tail end of your time there. So can you can you walk us through what the transition looked like after after Houlihan, you know, moving outside of, of investment banking? Yeah, it, uh, it was actually kind of funny. Um, so after, you know, I, I bought a car for a thousand pounds, I went traveling at the time of my life. I, I basically, yeah, I had a lot of savings at the time and I, I blew them all. So it was a wonderful year. Um, but then I needed a job. So I started applying to jobs in Stockholm, uh, got a couple offers at investment banks. And I was like, this is everything I wanted to leave behind. And so I started looking at other roles. Um, and so my first role was, in, was head of M&A for this Swedish listed company. I actually enjoyed that a lot. Um, when you're in corporate finance, you have to think a lot more closely about the strategy. You have to think a lot more closely about operations. Um, you care a lot more about the outcome of your work, particularly if you have stock or options in the company. And if they form a substantial part of your pay, you definitely want the stock price to go up. And so everything you do is 
um, with a lot more involvement and you you apply yourself in a different way. Um, so, so yeah, the higher emphasis on operations, higher emphasis on strategy, higher uh, degree of emotional attachment to the outcome of the negotiation. I think the other thing that was interesting was this was my first time in my career where I was driving the negotiation. Um, so testing out different negotiating tactics, applying what I learned in in uh, advanced negotiations classes, and also kind of seeing the irrational side of things. When you're a junior, you're valuing companies and you're doing PowerPoints and whatever. The client asks for this box to be blue, red, green. You don't really care. You just do it. But when you're the run, the one running the negotiation, it's not enough that the numbers make sense. That you need to get along with the people. Um, and you need to be able to communicate effectively, and it's it's a whole new skill set. So, so that was a very interesting transition. Yeah, that's that's definitely a an amazing transition, and it it makes a lot of sense with all your experience and the different roles that you've had in the, on on more on the sell side to switch on the buy side in a similar uh, similar role. I'm just curious to hear the relationship you had with maybe the corporate development team. So, how is the split of like capital allocation between organic growth and M and A in a company like this? Was it based on the different opportunities you would find or you would source through maybe the bankers or yourself? I'm just curious to hear about the, this whole process. I know it's it's a big open-ended question, but uh, if you could add color, I'd, I'd really appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to the firm's individual strategies. Uh, some firms are driven by strategic goals that they set or the requirements to grow. Um, in our case, we were Zordix was very much a momentum stock. Uh, so our ability to grow rapidly through MA was probably one of the priorities. Um, so in terms of capital allocation, the internal cash flow went mainly towards funding our operations. Uh, but we were regularly, we would regularly do uh, rights issues in order to fund MA. Maybe, maybe we can move on to your time now at Global Top Round. I noticed you stepped in at what must have been, you know, a bit, little bit more challenging time in terms of fundraising, you know, sourcing sourcing opportunities. So maybe you can give us a little breakdown of, you know, what Global Top Round is, what, what your what your job is, and what your what your your different responsibilities look like. Yeah, I mean, Global Top Round. The, the reason why I partnered with Global Top Round was because they had the accelerator side, they had the game testing platform, they were raising the VC fund. Uh, which meant that there was already a lot of gaming industry knowledge there and there were a lot of relationships. Uh, so it was a very strong foundation on which to build. Um, so currently at Global Top Round, I run the advisory unit. Um, and there's a lot, I wear a lot of various hats. Uh, on the one hand, we do new business development. So meeting companies, uh, trying to see who's a good, who we believe would be good clients for us. Um, our motto is I would never represent someone I wouldn't personally invest in. So we say no to a lot of deal flow, a lot, a lot of deal flow. And we try to make sure that we could actually help these people or these companies. Um, there's not a lot of business knowledge in gaming companies, I would say. So we actually add a lot of value. We spend a lot of time, uh, creating the PowerPoint presentations and the Excel models to that underpin the business and to be able to properly communicate uh, the company's strategies. I always say we're looking for gaming companies, not companies that are making games. And that's an important distinction we not only look for, but 
also try to represent. Um, in addition to obviously signing new clients, we have to build, if you think of investment banking like a marketplace, you have the sellers on one end and the buyers on the other. Uh, so we spend quite a bit of time building relationships with investors. Yeah, I, I got to say like a shout out to all of my MDs and VPs and directors who I cursed over the years. Like there is so much to the job that you just don't appreciate until you're in it. Uh, so that's what I'm currently experiencing. Uh, but yeah, to get back on track, uh, building relationships with the investors is a, is a big part of the, of the job. Uh, executing on the transactions. So just doing the marketing, reaching out to people, establishing whether there's interest, uh, moving on through LOI, SPA, et cetera, due diligence. Uh, we assist, assist through the entire process. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And I, I'm just curious to hear a little bit how you got interested in video games. Is that something you've done, you, you've played your whole life or it just happened to be a firm that's that specializes in this? Yeah, I mean, it, it was it's kind of funny. Growing up, I played a lot of video games. And then when I started working in banking, I didn't play any. Uh, and then when I worked at Zordix, I started sort of playing games again because I had to. And I was like, oh, like this is actually something I really like. And um, I stayed in the industry because for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that I think video games is the intersection of the arts. You have music, you have gameplay, you have narratives, you have, um, you know, the graphics, which are all hand-drawn or whatever it is. People forget that. Uh, so I really think of video games as an art form. I think there's a very real need for advisors in the space. Um, you hear so many horror stories of people signing contracts they just don't understand because they didn't have representation or people not understanding the accounting implications of the deals they're about to sign. And so when I looked around in the industry, I saw there were a couple guys or a couple people doing really big deals and few to no boutique banks. So I think it's a pretty career defining moment when you identify a need in an industry that you could actually fill. And that's what it was for me. I'm curious to hear too, like you met, you, you touched a little bit on fundraising before. I'd be curious to hear what, what the fundraising process looks like on your end when, when you have that mandate. Well, so uh, it's kind of funny because a fundraising process and an M&A process are actually very similar. If you think about it, when you're fundraising, you're selling a portion of equity. When you're doing M&A, you're selling 100% of equity. Right. Uh, I, I think the nuances are, there's a lot more due diligence in an M&A deal. There's a lot more focus on tax and HR and um, making sure there are no hidden issues, uh, ensuring that the revenues are what you say they are and that they're going to be what you say they're going to be. Whereas on a fundraise, the emphasis is a lot more on growth and story. So, you know, the big hairy goal, uh, where in which direction are you heading? Use of funds is also a big emphasis. So they're similar in terms of like the underlying process. It's just in certain parts where they diverge. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And maybe on on the on the growth story. So you you talked about gaming companies versus companies that make games. I'm curious, maybe just to hear a bit of more of a definition of what that means. And after you've talked about this, if you could explain how you kind of value companies like this, is it based on on future games? But you said they don't make games, so that, that's why I kind of want to 
understand like how the whole valuation process of a company like this works? Yeah. Uh, so just to to clarify, because um, I could see where the where it might be confusing. If you're just the studio whose goal is to make your life's work, which is a successful game, I don't consider that a good investment case. So when I say we're looking for a um, gaming company, I mean, you have a game plan for not just this game, but the next three games. You're building an IP universe. You're moving into life services. Uh, you're not just bringing a creative vision to life but you're reading the market, you're identifying what the market needs, you're responding and investing to it and moving with it. And, and so it's really a shift of mindset. And if you're in gaming, it's actually very clear. Some people are business people and some people are artists. And as much as the art is important, we try to work with the business people. So that's what I meant by game uh, gaming companies versus companies that make games. That's where that nuance comes from. Valuation is a whole other discussion. Uh, when it comes to fundraising, we typically use rules of thumb. So your first round is going to be, let's say you're trying to raise $5 million, you're going to raise 20%. It's not ultra scientific, but it's a great starting point uh, because you can then move along with the market. So if there's a lot of demand for the asset, you can reduce, obviously, the percentage uh, required. If there isn't a lot of demand, we try to get creative on terms, uh, whether it's waterfalls, whether it's recoups. Um, you know, there are a lot of different ways you could get creative, particularly in gaming. Uh, so that's where we look. And um, I guess, you know, there are gaming companies that don't do just games, right? There's tech providers, there's service providers, uh, there's all different sorts of gaming companies. So there are, depending on what kind of gaming company we're talking about, there are various ways to value them. Um, we could go into that if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for a conscious of time, we 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 would love to hear that. Maybe we can talk about it a bit after the call, but that that sure. definitely be be super interesting to to hear about. But just for for conscious of time, I think we'll we'll keep it as that. But it's it's such an amazing opportunity that that you have to do this. Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's uh it's it's been a roller coaster i think like a lot of what people tell you about starting your own business like you have to be really naive to do it and i always thought it sounded so cliche but it's true like the roller coaster of emotions you go through the how difficult it can be at time and times and how rewarding it could be at times it's it's absolutely true and um yeah i feel pretty privileged to be in this in this position so we, we've touched a lot on on your career path. Obviously, an extremely successful career, uh, you know, to date. For a lot of students who at, at Concordia, <laughs> well, for a lot of students at Concordia, I think they have a lot lot to look up to. So I was wondering, maybe maybe quickly, you can you can touch on little maybe some pieces of advice for for first, second, third year students at Concordia, for which the position that you were in, you know, just just a few years ago, who are looking to break into a, a similar path. All right. Um, so Kenneth Woods, fantastic. Um, even if it's FISA, it's very good as well. Um, the four, For us, it was called 455i, but the Kenneth Woods classes that you have to do are also excellent. Uh, I had to write a letter to get in because I didn't get into Kenneth Woods. At the time, it was the right decision, by the way. I was not a pleasant person, um, but I weren't. 
um, so those classes are very good. I think the case competitions are super useful. I think um, the Wall Street Oasis, sorry, not Wall Street Oasis. What is it called? Uh, Wall Street Prep. Wall Street Prep. Wall Street Prep is very useful. Um, ultimately, if you're genuinely like interested, I think the best thing for you to do is the the case competitions. If you can't get into the investment case, investment banking case comps, then do your own. So go out, value a company, uh, challenge yourself to write a report and like publish it on uh, on Seeking Alpha. Just like do it. There's there's no better thing than doing it. Like I had to teach myself how to use Excel. I went into the lab. And for two days, I just didn't use the maps. Again, it sounds like a cliche, but I did it. And that puts you miles ahead of everyone. Uh, the other thing that case comps teaches you is how to do a PowerPoint quickly. So really useful skill, actually. Um, the co-op program is also extremely useful. It gives you real world experience, things you could actually speak to. I think the last point is, um, don't get overly obsessed. Don't forget like you have friends. In the long run, those friends are a lot more valuable than your starting job. Uh, those relationships are extremely valuable. And um, like I think one of the things that helped me a lot was we had study groups. We had a group of like four or five friends. We would share resources, share job postings, uh, give each other feedback on our models, on our presentations. We would practice interviewing with each other. And I think that the human element, the teamwork part can't be discounted. And the final point is like, really try to dive into your network, uh, ask for those recommendations, like push for it. I think I started off the call by saying, yeah, informational interviews, like they're good and all, but they're not the end all. But I think I would retract that a little and say, it, go into an informational interview with a goal in mind. If the goal in mind is you want to be hired at the firm, then figure out how you can move your call along to get there. To so say, well, well, that was super interesting. Is there another colleague I could speak with? Or are job applications opening up? If your goal is to break into a particular bank, maybe ask for, an, for a referral to someone at that bank. Um, I think it's good to have general questions, but have a goal when you speak with someone. And at the end of the call, try to achieve that goal or ask or close whatever it was you were trying to achieve. Yeah, well, well, thank you, Jacques. I think you you highlighted a clear path for students. And I, I would have loved to hear something like this in my first year at, at Concordia. So hopefully this reaches a, a lot of students because we do have a lot of resources at, at JMSB, KW, Van Berkham, FISA, and even now JMIS for all the new students listening is, is up on the rise. And Coming on Wednesday night can actually change your life. It did for for Matthew and I. So it's it's definitely a lot of great advice. So thank you for that. And obviously, I'm going to push for Casecom just like you did because I, I love them so much. And it's true that you build good PowerPoint skills, but good PowerPoint skills also allow you to spend more time on researching and the stuff that actually matters. So I think that's a lot of, uh, of good stuff. So yeah. thank you so much. Uh, frameworks. You build frameworks, and that's super important. Instead of just thinking and randomly, you build ways to think about the world. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So we we want to thank you, Jacques, for for taking the time and 
hopefully we wish you a lot of success in the rest of your career. It's already been uh, very successful and I'm sure a lot of people are going to listen to the episode and, and love what you had to say today. Awesome. Well, it was a pleasure. Perfect. All right.